Good morning, friends. Today's message is titled, Anger and Bitterness and Envy, Oh My. Well, today I want to talk about uh, you and me and about what uncontrolled anger can do to us. My base text for today comes from Proverbs chapter 16, verse 32. Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper, than one who takes a city. Well, in the ancient world, warriors were the greatest heroes. They were the superstars, the rock stars, if you will, of Israel. When men came back from battle, women wrote songs in their honor. You may remember one little ditty that made King Saul so angry when he realized David, the shepherd boy, had become more popular than he. They sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, when Saul heard that, his anger burned in him. I mean, jealousy drove him to attempt to murder David. Envy ate away at his insides until it finally destroyed him and his whole family. Now, we all know that anger is a powerful emotion which can be used for good and for evil. So let's understand something right off the bat. Anger is not always wrong. We know, for instance, that anger is one of the attributes of God. Did you know that the anger that the Bible speaks over a hundred times of the anger of the Lord? Now we know that God never sins, yet the Bible speaks repeatedly of his anger towards sin and disobedience. We know also that there are times when anger is justified and even righteous. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter four, verse twenty six, In your anger do not sin. When we see people hurting other people, when we watch the wholesale slaughter of the unborn, when we see children being lured into drugs and prostitution, when we see families torn apart by sin, that ought to make us angry. If we sit idly by while the world goes to hell in a handbasket, if we don't get angry, if we don't cry, if we don't care, then maybe something is wrong deep inside of us. So then anger can be an extremely useful and even Christian emotion. However, righteous anger can quickly lead us in the wrong direction. That same verse that says, in your anger, do not sin, adds this phrase at the end of Ephesians 4.26. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. In other words, don't go to bed mad. I mean, even if your anger is justified, don't go to sleep that way. Deal with it. Talk it out. Pray about it. Walk it out. But don't try to sleep it out. That just doesn't work. So what happens when you don't deal with your anger? Well, it settles deep in your heart. It hardens like concrete. It distorts your personality. It squeezes out your joy. It kind of oozes the smelly black gunk of unhappiness over every part of your life. That is why the very next verse in Ephesians offers this warning. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, people who are rock climbers, and that's not me, would kind of understand this verse. In order to get up the side of a mountain, you have to get a firm foothold. That's what Satan wants to do in your life. He wants to use your anger, even your legitimate anger, to get a foothold in your heart. Now, I mentioned Saul just a moment ago, King Saul, first king of Israel. He offers a particularly good case study because in so many ways, this is what happened to him. If you read 1 Samuel chapters 10 through 26, you discover some amazing things about this man. He was, in many respects, a gifted man. He was tall and handsome. He was a natural leader of men. He was skillful in battle, and he he was actually chosen by God to be the first king of Israel. Now, in many ways, he had all of the natural attributes for success, 
Plus, he had the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. Yet we remember him as a failure because of the way his life ended. Now, there were many contributing factors, but in the end, his anger destroyed his life. After it became clear that David would replace him as king, Saul's heart was so blinded by rage that he could think of only one thing, and that was killing David. So he hunted David like he was a wild animal, chased him into the Judean desert, tracking him to a cave by the Dead Sea, a place called En Gedi. And there David actually snuck in, cut off a corner of his robe when he was actually could have killed him. He meant it as a sign of mercy, but Saul continued to hunt him down. Now, even though Saul knew that David would be the next king, his hatred so consumed him that he tried to kill him anyway. And in the end, Saul and his sons were killed by the Philistines on the slopes of Mount Galboa. The Philistines cut off his head, put his armor in a pagan temple, and fashioned his headless corpse to the wall of Bethshan. What a humiliating end for a man with the seeds of greatness in him. Now, Saul had many flaws, but it was his anger that finally destroyed him. Now, there's another man in the Bible who had every right to be angry at the way he was treated. He was a good man, a teacher of God's law, a man who helped those in need, a man who got angry only when he saw injustice in the world. I mean, he never had a great education. He never held public office. He never wrote a book. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. His own family thought he was a little bit crazy. They never really understood why he did what he did or why he said what he said. And when he started out his ministry, the powers that be at first found him a nuisance, and later they found him a threat. They sent their best people to try to trip him up on technicalities, but it never worked. He was too smart to be fooled by their slick and devious questions. But every time he made them look foolish, it just made them matter. Now, eventually they decided that he, he, had, he had to be killed. But because he was popular with the common people, they couldn't arrest him haphazardly. They had to find a reason, a plausible excuse, something that would give them a cover for their dirty deeds. And that day came when they traveled to the capital city for a public celebration. Thousands of people were there that week. Multitudes lined the narrow streets as he rode on a donkey into the city. God save us, they cried. God save us. For almost a week, he taught publicly, answering questions, debating his opponents, preparing his followers for what was to come. And finally, the leaders decided to make their move. They'd found a man among his followers, his treasurer, no less, who was willing to sell him out in exchange for a handful of money. The deal was struck. The time was set. The plan made. It all went like clockwork. And the good man was arrested. I mean, five times he was tried before four different judges. The charges were not really clear, but it was something about blasphemy and then something about treason. At one hearing, the witnesses openly contradicted one another, but still it didn't make any difference. So great was their hatred, so deep their anger, so fierce their rage that truth did not count. This man must die, they said. Let justice be damned. He was cruelly beaten, ridiculed, spit upon, mocked, humiliated, tortured, beaten until he barely was barely conscious, stripped naked, condemned to die, forced to carry the instrument of his own death. And outside the city walls, near a limestone quarry with the strange face of a skull outlined on the side of a cliff, this good man was put to death. The Bible says that the passerby stopped when they saw him. Then they joined the jeering crowd gone mad with bloodlust. It was an awful scene, proof that the human mind is capable of the very worst atrocities.
you were there. So was I. So was everyone who ever walked on this sin-cursed planet. All of us were there that day, not to help him, but to hurt. To join the crazy crowd crying, crucify him, crucify him. We were all there watching a good man die, doing nothing to save him, nothing to ease his pain. Yeah, we were there. And he saw us. He saw you. He saw me. He knew you by name, and he knew me too. All of us joined in that terrible moment. All of us cheered when the nails drove through the flesh. All of us laughed when he screamed in agony. The whole human race was there laughing as Jesus, the Son of God, died. Now, if you've read your scriptures, you know he didn't say much that day. Only about seven or eight sentences. But boy, oh boy, what words they were. What power, what truth he spoke. Do you remember the first words he said from the cross? How could you ever forget them? He looked down, his chest heaving, the sun beating down on his fevered, bleeding brow, his face a mass of blood and tears, his hands and feet dripping with blood from the nail holes. He saw the laughter, heard the the jeers, and he knew that they were laughing at him. He had done nothing, nothing to deserve this. He just closed his eyes as if in prayer. And then he looked again at that wild mob below, and he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Forgive them, but they were guilty of the greatest crime in all history. Forgive them, but he was innocent and they knew it. Forgive them, but they twisted the truth, made up lies, slandered his name, bribed his treasurer, rigged the trial to guarantee his death. It was murder, pure and simple. They meant to kill him and they did. So forgive them? I mean, how could it be? But that is what he said. Father, forgive them. He was a good man. He's the best the world has ever seen. He came to show us how to live and how to die. He came to save us while we were yet sinners. He even came to save those who put him to death. Father, forgive them. I got to tell you, friends, I'm so glad Jesus said that because it shows us that forgiveness is always possible. If he could forgive, then anything is possible. If he could rise above anger and hatred, if he could find a way to forgive his enemies, well, then so can we. I wonder how many of us have gotten in trouble because we gave in to our anger. I wonder how many of us have said things in a moment of tension that later we live to regret. I wonder how many marriages have been broken, how many friendships have ended, how many jobs have been lost because we've lost our temper and said and done things we later regretted. The question is, is there a better way? How do you handle your anger so that it does not destroy you? Well, I want to end by giving you, offering you four suggestions. Here's suggestion number one. Have the courage to face your anger. It all begins there until you can admit to the other face that no one ever sees, you'll never get better. So many of us have a public face that looks good and a private face that we keep behind locked gates and stone walls, a face of anger and hatred. Let me say that I have learned from hard personal experience the truth of what I'm talking about. I know what it is to lose your temper in a critical moment and say things you regret later. I also know that years later, things can never be as they once were. And for me, the healing did not begin until I could say, I got angry and I lost my temper. Now, the rest doesn't matter. I have to own up to my own problems. Here's suggestion number two. Share your struggles with a friend. And I'm going to begin by being real honest, and that's that men really seem to struggle in this area. 
We harbor deep feelings and we do not know what to do with them. And what's often worse, we're afraid to tell anyone because we think that sharing our struggles is a sign of weakness. But let me tell you, friends, and especially men, how wrong we are. The weak cover up. Only the strong have the courage to admit they need help. Here's suggestion number three. Do a relationship inventory based on Ephesians 4, 30 to 32. These words read, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. But these words are incredibly specific. I mean, check your life for any signs of bitterness, anger, rage, slander, brawling, and malice. If you find even a trace, get rid of them. They're like a virus in your spiritual bloodstream because anger kills, bitterness kills, slander kills, rage kills, resentment kills, and not just others. It kills you too. Suggestion number four, yield control of your life to the Holy Spirit. Now, I could have called this message self-control, but if I did that, I really should have put down Holy Spirit control. Ephesians 4.30 warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit by harboring bitterness in our hearts. You can have the Holy Spirit in control or your anger can take control, but there's no third option. There's no middle ground. See, Jesus has shown us the way. You, you do not have to live in anger and bitterness over the way people treat treated you. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, your life can be different. God's Spirit can set you free from the chains that bind you to the past. The price is simple, but it's not cheap. You've got to give up your anger, let go of your bitterness, and say farewell to hurtful memories. And then and only then will the Holy Spirit be free to take control of your life. My prayer today, friends, is may God grant you new life through Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may you experience the freedom of forgiveness and the joy that comes from letting him take control. Until next time, see the vision, live the mission, and feel the passion. God bless.